I remember uh, beginning college seminary, I already had, uh, I don't know, like six years of, <laughs> I had already spent six years in college at a two-year community college. And, um, and uh, so anyway, so I got to uh, seminary college. I had two more years to finish off my, my bachelor's degree, and it was in philosophy. And when I, um, when I really began to enter into philosophy, I, I just absolutely loved it. I still love it. It's, I prefer it over theology, even though all, all the other degrees are in theology. I prefer philosophy yet, uh, just as, you know, my own study, et cetera. And one of the uh, most important books I ever read was uh, Plato's Republic. Now, Plato's Republic is uh, it's just a, a fantastic read um, because of how much truth it conveys. I mean, there, there's so many wonderful concepts in there about justice and about, um, you know, one's understanding of knowledge, the allegory of the cave, um, etc. But the book is itself a a sort of utopia. It's a utopia in, in that it presents what the ideal state should look like, the construction of the state. And it constructs a state around these different ideas. Throughout history, uh, many authors have written utopias. Uh, St. Augustine's City of God is a, is a sort of utopia. St. Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia. You ever wonder why we're on Utopia Drive? <laughs> or how we got the name, we're on Utopia Drive. So, um, you know, and, and generally speaking, utopian ideas arise when societies or civilizations tend to be in a significant amount of conflict or discord. Because it's at those times that people start to ask, what would be the ideal civilization? What would be the best way of doing this? How can we make this all better? Now, there's one thing about utopias that is really important for everyone to understand. They always fail. Every time they've been tried, they don't work. Religious communities will gather together to try to create a utopia. Why do they do so? They do so to insulate themselves out of fear for the, for the general civilization, seeking to protect itself and its members. And slowly but surely, they become more and more exclusive, autonomous, and authoritarian, which chases all kinds of people away, etc. And just like every utopia, not just religious ones, a small group of people gain power and end up oppressing everyone else. That's what happens in utopias. All right, well, let's move ahead. Historically, we look at uh, the effects of the Industrial Revolution. The effects of the Industrial Revolution were that, early on, were that a small group of people owned the means of production. They were the wealthiest, and then everybody else worked for them. And one of the, one of the things that Western civilization had to confront was this, this huge inequity. And, uh, you know, there, there weren't things like child labor laws, there, weren't, there was nothing yet like unions or, you know, things to protect workers, etc. And so, very truly, workers were preyed upon, as it were, they were mistreated. And society began to say, well, we have to fix this, right? We have to do something. 
And they saw capitalism as creating this reality. And toward the end of the, the 19th century, there was much thought about how to make capitalism better. And uh, Marx and Engels came forward with the idea of what we now call Marxism and or communism. And they said, this is how we can make it better. What's going to happen is, because there's this inequity, all of these people are suffering. They're going to rise up in class conflict against those who hold power and the means of production. And in doing so, they're going to bring about a true com communitarian reality where there's more equality economically. And so it was presumed that this would just sort of happen naturally, that as culture progressed and became more enlightened, that culture would see that this was the greatest good. And, and because of the class conflict, it would bring this about. Well, it didn't happen. So the people who really liked the idea said, well, we probably need to make it happen. And so this is how we get Russia. This is how we get Cuba, Venezuela, China, etc. The utopian ideal to fix everything never works. Now, one of the, you know, there's a lot of criticism about uh, socialism, uh, Marxism, uh, from an economic standpoint, right? I mean, the, the one of the things you hear is, you know, uh, uh, socialism is great until you run out of other people's money, right? Because you have to spread it around. But the reason why utopias fail is because they misunderstand the nature of the human person. They, they completely misunderstand the nature of the human person. If you've ever lived, as I have, in a largely socialistic country, Italy, you find that when a person cannot work hard and from the fruit of that labor and also their education, you know, make a better life from themselves, it suppresses the entire, the entire country, the, the entire populace, why work to get ahead? You can't get ahead. You can't, I can't do anything to better myself. I can't do anything to better my situation. This runs contrary to the nature of the human person which pursues goodness and excellence. Right? The nature of the human person is to pursue goodness and excellence. But if I can never achieve it, if it's always going to be taken away from me, then it leads to a degradation of the human person. More so, uh, Marxism was also deterministic, deterministic, in that it did not believe people truly had free will, that they were determined by their economic status, their economic state, which needed to change so that, obviously, presumably, they might have more freedom. But Marxism didn't truly believe in human freedom. It believed you were conditioned by everything around you. Okay, now why does this matter? I've been thinking about this for a number of days. Why in the world does this matter? Is he just going to criticize socialism? No. But that's a start. What happened through the 60s, looking at all of these other countries, well, the 50s, 60s, 
is the elites, and it, with, by elites I mean particularly in academic institutions who promoted communism, the elites initially thought, oh, this is working in Russia, and then it, they came to find out that, of course, all of these horrible abuses and atrocities occurred in Russia and China and everywhere else. So they had to go back to the drawing board. How do we bring about a utopia? How do we bring about true equality? We can't just do it, this Marxism stuff isn't working, just basing it on economics. How do we bring it about? And what has come from their ruminations and their conditioning is what you've heard me say before is postmodernism. And it's still very much connected to Marxism. The goal is, you know, because these people are utopians and idealists, they want to bring about what they believe to be true equality. And so they see the world as divided into basically two camps, oppressors and victims. You're either an oppressor or you're a victim. And what they've done is they basically said, based upon your race, you're either an oppressor or a victim. Based upon your gender, your sexuality, based upon economic realities, you're either an oppressor or you're a victim. And they have spent decades telling people how much they are victims and how much they need to overthrow the oppressors. And so if you're a woman, you're oppressed, just so you know. <laughs> and you might say, well, what, I, I don't feel oppressed. No, you're oppressed. I am? Well, and if you don't recognize it, it's just unconscious. We know you're oppressed because of the patriarchy. Obviously, you're oppressed. If you're black, you're oppressed. Well, I don't think I'm oppressed? No, you're oppressed because you're black or because you're Mexican. If you're white, you're an oppressor. You just are, unless you're a woman. <laughs> you just are an oppressor. Well, okay, but I don't feel like I'm oppressing people. I, I don't, I'm, I'm a fairly rational being and I don't seem to find much indication of oppression being caused by my hand, well, that's unconscious bias. Something that can never be proven and something that's completely nonsensical. It's like saying you're responsible for your actions when you're dreaming. You're sleeping and you're biased. You can't be unconsciously responsible for anything. It's nonsensical. And what happens and what has happened, if you begin to look at what's going on in our culture, and it doesn't matter what side of this argument you're on. This is the dynamic. This is the conflict. There are those who believe that our society needs to change and it needs to suppress or repress those who are oppressing others and raise up those who are victims. I, it's, it's so profound. I, I was reading a... Uh, a a situation happening at the University of Lincoln and uh, you know kids have kids young adults have on their phone they have apps they got an app and if they're in a class and the that teacher says anything that makes them feel unsafe they can report that teacher 
a teacher will be reviewed and will have to answer for that microaggression. Imagine going to college and every time you hear something that challenges your worldview, you get to report the person promoting it. What in the world is college for? And what does an 18-year-old know about anything? No offense to 18-year-olds. If I want to know whether to buy an Xbox or a PS5, I'm going to ask you. You know a lot about that. What do you know about philosophy or economics or history? Not yet a lot, and that's okay. That's why you're in college. <laughs> it's the whole point of going to college. But we're in a situation now when people feel as though their beliefs are being affronted, that that becomes cause for potentially getting somebody fired. This is where we're at. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture onto some, some other points here that, that may say, I'm really trying to not make them controversial. I'm trying to explain what I believe to be the situation. Why does so much of the media hate Donald Trump? And you might say, well, Father, I got a whole list. Okay, fair enough. I think we can say that, you know, he doesn't have the most uh, warm personality. And the way that he tends to treat those who, and, and speak to those who disagree with him is somewhat caustic. I think we can say that safely. But really what is occurring is he's the embodiment of a threat to this utopianism. Now, I'm not saying he, you know, he ought to remain, I'm not taking any position on any of that stuff. I'm saying that the conflict exists because of that. And it's not just with, with him, it's also with particularly the Catholic Church and Christians. Because we don't tend to accept that view that everybody who's Christian, by the way, is also an oppressor. That we are oppressing people randomly and unconsciously without even knowing it. And so what's happening in our, in our culture is this bifurcation of, of worldviews, this separation of worldviews, where one side is telling the other, no, you're keeping us from a, a, a greater ideal, and vice versa. And everybody's throwing Molotov cocktails at each other. And nobody is communicating. But I believe that the worst of it is from the utopians who are seeking to oppress everyone who doesn't agree with them. You can't post things on Twitter necessarily without getting blocked, suspended. Same thing on Instagram. Well, that's not approved. That's not an approved view. And so you have to be silenced. I mean, just think about it at work. Can you tell people at work you disagree with gay marriage? Good luck. If you work here, you can. Even you say, as a Catholic, I disagree with it. It's not truly marriage because God created marriage. Well, you must hate gay people. No, no, no. I, what I'm saying is that this is divinely revealed. I don't hate gay people at all. Well, you're oppressing them. How am I oppressing them? because they should be able to do whatever they want. By the way, I, it might surprise a lot of gay people to find out that they're oppressed. <laughs> and here's the thing that the utopians get wrong about this, is again, they misunderstand human nature, because they are defining people 
by their standards of oppression, that your identity means you're oppressed. It means you're a victim. If you're a woman, you are a victim. We say so. If you're black, you're a victim. We say so. And you can only act in the world out of that victimization. This is complete nonsense. And furthermore, this is not at all liberating for people to say automatically you're oppressed and a victim. Because living out of one's victimhood will never bring true, true liberation. And so we move to Jesus Christ, the King. There is no way that in this world there will ever be full liberation or full equality. It will not happen. It has never happened. It will not happen. Furthermore, the world was not created for it. The world does not exist so that everyone will have the same things. That's not the reason the world was created. It's not the reason we were created. We were not created so that in this life we might have perfection. We were not created so that in this life we might have everything we want. That's not why God created us. And the problem with all of this secular utopianism is they're trying to create a sort of heaven on earth, which does not happen, will not happen, has never happened, because it's contrary to the reason of human existence, which is to get to God. The reason we're created is because God loved us and desires for us to return that love. The answer that Christians have to any of the utopianisms that are going to come along, and they're all going to fail, doesn't matter where they come from, the answer that the Christians have is, your liberator is not the state, your liberator is not Donald Trump, your liberator is not the Democratic Party, your liberator is not an economic uh, utopianism. None of that can be your liberator because it doesn't liberate the heart of the human person, the soul of the human person. The only one who does that is Jesus Christ. And any time we try to place too much of our efforts into, into making earth heaven, we are misfocused and misguided and we will always be dissatisfied because we're living for the wrong thing. And so when we celebrate this great solemnity of Jesus Christ, our King of the universe. Do we try to do the best we can here? Yes. Do we try to make the world better? Yes. Do we try to make sure people who are legitimately oppressed are relieved of that? Absolutely. We try in good faith, but always understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. No one else and no other organization, only Jesus Christ. And as we continue to negotiate and navigate this conflict that we have in our, you know, within our even, even our own communities, you know, people who disagree on, on politics and all these other things, we have to get back to what we all agree on. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our liberator. We do the work we can to make our lives better for our family and our society, but we are always aiming at something that can't be achieved here because God didn't create it for that.
He created this as a time for us to grow in virtue and love and goodness to prepare ourselves for eternity. We are beings destined for eternity. That's where we need to be building up our treasure. That's where our focus, our primary focus, needs to always remain. Please stand.